I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick, and also Happy New Year, as this is my first session for the new year 2022. Uh, today, our guest is Virginia Roach. She is the executive director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, which we're going to explore today. It's a really cool learning community like no other, and I really want to share it with our listeners. Um, the center at Johns Hopkins is a place that brings together the brightest minds of the next generation for an unprecedented academic challenge. Since 1979, this nonprofit has served young scholars and their families through academic programs, guidance, research, and partnerships. These kids are exceptional. You'll know many of them that Virginia shares with us. But before that, I want to celebrate Virginia a little bit. Quick overview. She has been a real formidable uh, star in nonprofit education and nonprofit organizations. She has a strong commitment to ensuring that every student has the opportunity to work at the top of their potential. And over the course of the year, sorry, over the course of her career, she has been a professor and executive at the National Association of State Boards of Education and a special education teacher. From 2015 to 2020, she served as a dean of Fordham University's Graduate School of Education. And before that, she was a dean at Bank Street's Graduate School of Education. In both roles, she led the expansion of the school's online programming and worked strategically to diversify the student population. Virginia Roach, welcome to The Caring Economy. Thank you. I, um, I always ask for our listeners' sake and for my own to have our guests give a sort of a, a quick overview of their, their career journey, sort of where they're born and how they got where they got. Right. Well, I am a child of the Midwest, but I also am a child of the 60s. So I, when I think about what has shaped my, my worldviews and outlook on life, I, I can't deny the fact that, you know, in my early years, uh, we were watching the Detroit riots and Detroit burning down uh, less than 10 miles from my house. Um, we were watching the Vietnam War and the impact that was having on the families in my community. Uh, and families around the, the world. Um, and we couldn't, you can't be alive during that time and from my perspective and not be conscious of equity and uh, race issues in, in the United States. So that was very early on. Um, but I also, um, my parents are originally from New York, and my mother um, actually was in a nurse's training program, and she actually volunteered at the infamous Willowbrook State School on Staten Island, and it, it was a state institution for people with cognitive disabilities, and it uh, was a horrible place of abuse uh, and neglect uh, and overcrowding for people with disabilities. And she would talk about these haunting experiences she had. And I would say to her, how, how could you stay there? How could you witness this? And her response was, because when I was with residents and I was able to take them outside and away from their living conditions, they were happier and they were safe. And that was important. And that really stuck with me. 
And later on, when I myself started to think about the then new career and new field of special education, I actually worked one summer in a state institution for people with significant cognitive disabilities. Mm -hmm. And while it wasn't as bad as Willowbrook, it wasn't great either. And I saw that people were being um, treated as subhuman, um, living in conditions that were subpar, while the administrators who were able to come and leave that campus mm -hmm. had much, much nicer uh, quarters to live in. And in that context, I thought, you know, we really have to be thinking about how does every human matter? Mm -hmm. So later in policy work, as I was trying to support the needs of kids with disabilities across states, I started to bump up against state legislatures where I was asking them just to include students with disabilities in their legislation, just for them to hold teachers and school districts accountable for what mm -hmm. they're doing with kids with disabilities. And I got a tremendous amount of resistance. Mm -hmm. And what we found out was it had nothing to do with kids with disabilities. It's because they knew if they put accountability systems in place to track the, the outcomes of those kids, they'd have to have accountability systems in place for black and brown kids, and mm. they didn't want to do it. Mm. So those were all very informative experiences. I also have an aunt who's a nun who worked in Guatemala at the height of the civilian uh, persecution and oppression. And she worked tirelessly to really connect indigenous women to one another, women who, who were never in a situation where they could ever introduce themselves to anybody else, speak their name out loud. Mm -hmm. And she really worked with them to recognize their own agency. And in that context, that further solidified my concern about how do we treat everybody mm -hmm. humanely and, and to their potential. So, my my journey has been additive it's a, a it is a series of of experiences that i've had that have led me to just be like a mad dog on a chain about equity <laughs> i love it uh, as a side note it is your mother and your aunt or were your mother and your aunt sisters or were they different parts of your family different parts so my aunt is my father's sister and my mother obviously the other side so you had two great mentors or role models there that's pretty intense for a young kid growing up to be surrounded by that subject matter i would imagine um was there a lot of fun time if you're surrounded by such serious conversations at the dining table Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, but I think particularly when I think about what was going on in the 60s and 70s and the experiences that I had, you know, those were very violent, turbulent times. And I think because of the overall violence and turbulence, there was a much greater tolerance for that level of turbulence. Yeah, um, I, I, There's a significant difference between the level of overall community violence that I experienced as a child than, for instance, my own children experienced. I mean, we, you know, we didn't have that kind of, of unbridled violence then. Yeah, I mean, I remember the Vietnam, what was it we called it the the Vietnam War was the living room or the television war, right? It brought right. it into that graphic portrayal every night was in the news. Right. Um, so you you were inspired by your mom, your aunt, and in the moment, uh, the times we were living in, and then decided to go to undergraduate to pursue education, special education. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then Michigan State? 
Yes. So I, I worked there and um, I started working with students with disabilities and became very involved in the, what was called at that point, um, the movement to mainstream students with disabilities mm -hmm. into the general classroom. It then moved into um, an orientation of including kids with disabilities into the general program. And I, I worked as a teacher in that context. And then I worked at a national association trying to support those kinds of policies um, across states in the country to promote inclusion of kids with disabilities. And with the, um, the, there's the legislative part that you've referenced already. What about the teachers, the teachers unions? How, how were they interacting with what you were doing? Well, one of the things that we did is we started really helping teachers understand how they could support kids with disabilities in their classroom. And we talked about the fact, which research bears out, is once teachers have the skills, because teachers are not inhumane, right? They, they need skills. Awesome. Once they have the skills to differentiate instruction to meet students' needs, Mm -hmm. then they actually can meet the needs of all the students in the class in a, in a much uh, more robust way. So mm -hmm. we, we really try to help them diversify their skill set and hone their skill set. Mm -hmm. um, having worked in teacher preparation, I can tell you what, what teacher preparation programs do it gives a teacher a start. Mm -hmm. It's not the end of their education, um, but all too often teachers are treated like that as the end of their education. Mm -hmm. So part of this is thinking about lifelong development for teachers so that they're able to do the work that they want to do. So um, there's so many interesting aspects of this work that you've done. I wonder, as we look across time and as we look across state geographies, if you might be able to characterize uh, how it's evolved, for example, um, you talked about mainstreaming becoming more about uh, equity and inclusion. Uh, seems like we've come a long way. We probably still have a long way to go. And is that is that true? And is it true across each state or are some states still behind in a sense? Well, you know, it's, it, you know, this is a span of 30 years now, right? So mm -hmm. I would say in the early 1980s, there was a great deal of progress in this area and a great deal of movement around um, uh, federal legislation and, and continuing well into the 90s in the federal legislation. Mm -hmm. I think um, we, we have some of the issues that were questions in the past are not questions anymore. The kids do have a, a seat at the table with everybody else mm -hmm. that uh, we need to think of in terms of the variety of different kinds of needs that children have and make sure we meet their needs. So I do think that overall the progress has been um, significant, but it's a long game, right? So um, some, some families uh, become um, uh, impatient um, some families uh, equate services or, or a special aid next to their child as, um, as progress. Uh, I, I have a different philosophy, um, meeting the needs of kids so that other children learn and grow and understand that the humanity is a broad spectrum, I think is the most important thing because children are not children forever. They grow up and they live in our society. So um, I do think we've come a long way. There's federal legislation that supports that and keeps that in place. Uh, it waxes and wanes. And I think, um, you know, when we have tough economic times, 
the, the good thing for students uh, who are especially designated either because of poverty or, um, or disability is that the resources are still designated for them. Uh, that does create a backlash in some instances. Yeah, well, I like that concept of a spectrum and I actually use it quite a bit in my writing and my talking about just, uh, just about everything from social responsibility to um, learning disabilities. There's a range of people on any issue. And if we can think of it that way, it's easier to meet people where they are on that spectrum and then work toward a, a more positive place. I think it's a healthy way to look at it. Um, so let's talk about one part of this cohort that you've been dealing with professionally. This is the, the Center for Talented Youth, but you're specialized there at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland. Tell us a little bit about the center and then about the overall movement, so to speak. My words. So but I so we have a, a very interesting origination story. Um, we have our student zero um, and his name is Joe Bates. So he skipped high school and started at Johns Hopkins. Because he's our student zero and there's such a lore around him, I assumed he was dead. <laughs> and he's not, he's like younger than I am, I think. And, um, and I had a chance to, to meet with him and interview him. And he said, you know, yeah, high school would not have been good for me. Basically, Julian Stanley took him under his wing and, and took other students under his wing who um, were considered uh, mostly mathematically precocious youth, but, but precocious youth in terms of their academic achievement. And from there, CTY or the Center for Talented Youth grew out of that out of that beginning at Johns Hopkins. So for us, we know that and we experience on a daily basis that that students are moving along, they are they're accelerating in their their learning and they start to top out and their parents have no place to turn. The school doesn't know what to do because the school is designed on an age grade format so that students are all moving uh, forward in a semi lockstep fashion. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is when you have a student who knows everything that the teacher's talking about, school becomes boring. They start to zone out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they start to act out. Sometimes they're, they are employed by the teachers to be full-time aides in the classroom and tutor other children. Yeah. Um, and, and in some instances, their classroom placement is actually manipulated by the school principal because they can raise the test scores, the average test scores in, in the various classes. Mm -hmm. So that's, those are all the, the sort of the bad things that can happen. Great things can happen for these kids in their homeschools, but ultimately the school system is not designed to support students with, with advanced talent. So we at CTY step into the breach. Students who come to CTY, in order to be eligible for our program, you have to be performing at least two grade levels above what you would be typically performing. And many of our students are performing at, at grade levels three, four, and five years above where, where they would typically be at their age. So we actually started by providing supplementary um, services to students. Um, and we also then broke into um, online learning so that we could provide courses to students where they could move through a curriculum at their own pace. Mm -hmm. So it's not unusual for us to have a student complete a year's worth of mathematics in three months. Mm 
um, we have we have students who by the time they hit ninth grade they're already taking calculus and their parents are saying now what do i do because this my son or daughter has to have so many mathematics credits to graduate according to state law now what do i do and so we provide courses for them and they get they get high school credit for it so they can continue to progress at their own pace. We're talking about the, um, the center at Hopkins, but then it's a global movement now. So can you give us a sense of scale? Uh, how many students are active in this, perhaps domestically or globally? And um, are we talking like a rare, rare, rare few or is there, are there more geniuses around us than we realize? <laughs> Well, I, I will say there, there are two ways to look at this. One is um, what experts in the field believe, right? So experts in the field believe in a given population, probably about three to 5% of the people would be classified as people who have advanced talent. Um, in the United States, about 6% of the students actually qualify and are served in programs in one way or another. Uh, they're specifically designated for students who, are, uh, who have advanced talent. Um, and then it varies by country. So even how advanced talent is defined, it varies by country and culture. So in um, the United States and Western Europe, it is typically defined as a, um, based on uh, intellectual uh, capacity as tested um, through intelligence tests or achievement tests, you know, that's typically the, the conception. In other cultures, to be gifted is all about artistry and athletics or your ability, you're, you're magnetic, so you're, you're gifted, or you have great leadership skills, so you're gifted. So the term changes from place to place or may encompass both of those. In that context though, the understanding that there are students with advanced talent has been growing. Mm. But the conception of it actually started in Western Europe and the United States. Mm -hmm. And I know from our previous conversations, there's some really notable alumni from the, the CTY, which would audience a little flavor. I, I, I know, for example, we've talked about Lady Gaga and Mark Zuckerberg, but you know, they capture the imagination. But can you maybe give us a few examples that might resonate globally? Well, you know, the founder of Lyft, because of all the, the issues with Lyft, I mean, they're, they're, the founder of Lyft is a, a, a CTY student as well. Um, one of the things I will say is while those big names are the ones that, that you know, people like to sort of gravitate to, um, we actually have a number of very, very talented people um, who are highly successful. One of the things, the little known facts uh, about CTY is every year there are two lists that come out. It's the Forbes 30 under 30 and Forbes oh. 40 under 40. Mm -hmm. And these are people with extraordinary talent who are doing some phenomenal things very early on in their career. Mm -hmm. And what never gets noted in those lists, uh, because we're not really, you know, a degree granted okay. program, uh -huh. but we know who's gone to our program, is those lists are peppered with our graduates. We know that we have lots of very, very um, uh, successful graduates. Uh, we have graduates who win the Westinghouse Prize uh, and the, the other major science and mathematic awards. 
um, the the person, the first woman to win um, uh, one of the major mathematic prizes mm -hmm. uh, as, as a, a younger child was one of our students. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a lot of students who have fame that way. But but I will say that for me, what's most moving is a family that I was just visiting with recently. And their daughter is mathematically precocious. And when she thinks about what she likes to do in her free time, she likes to do math. Mm -hmm. and, and she was topping out of her math program in school and she was getting ready to go to high school and her parents really didn't know what to do. And they started very aggressively looking at boarding schools where they thought that she would have an opportunity to continue to excel. And she didn't wanna go away from home. And then they did a Google search for CT for gifted education, mm -hmm. and they found CTY. So now we're working with her, her high school. She takes courses through us. She gets high school credit. And now instead of going away to boarding school, she's a cross country runner on her and in her high school team. And I think for me, those are some of the really persuasive arguments. I, I want to ask you more about the, the social aspects of those students' lives, um, which is so important. But first, ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, I'm thrilled to have Virginia Roach with us. She's the executive director of Johns Hopkins University's Center for Talented Youth. Uh, talking about that student you just mentioned, the young girl who's able to run cross country, um, how does your program or does uh, the CTY program allow kids to socially evolve as well as academically? Yeah, and I would say when we talk to our alumni and their parents in particular, it's actually the social piece that is one of the things that they talk about much more than the academic piece. Mm -hmm. um, we, one of the major benefits that we hear from our, our alum is they say, I finally found my tribe. I mean, that's literally what they say. Awesome. They, um, they don't feel sometimes that they fit in at school. Um, unfortunately, in the United States, there is actually a very strong anti-intellectualism in our society. Absolutely. So unfortunately, in our country, there's a very strong anti-intellectualism. Mm -hmm. And some of our students, as a result, they mask their talent in school, so they don't see <clears> that. Um, our students are inquisitive and they love to learn. And when they come to CTY and they're around other kids who are inquisitive and run and love to learn, then they start to really expose themselves socially and learn and connect with others. Mm -hmm. Ironically, because our students are so bright, they don't fail very much in school. And so when we have them with us, the first thing we do is we say, we're going to challenge you. And you know what? You don't have to be right all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's okay if you don't get something right the first time. And we're going to work with you on, on, on moving forward. Because some students really have a hard time with the conception of academic failure because they've never experienced it before. Mm -hmm. So we help them develop that skill with us as well. So we, we try to connect them um, with other kids that share their interests. So in addition to our, our, our classes, in our on-campus summer programs, we have non-class-based activities. In our online programs, we have chess clubs and math clubs and Minecraft games and ways in which our students to, can engage with each other in a social way around doing the kinds of things that they like to do. 
Um, when you get certain um, learning uh, differences, for example, I'm thinking dyslexia or autism, how do students with those types of, of differences factor into CTY? I, what, one of the things that's uh, a peculiarity of our field is there are students who are very bright and have advanced talent. And at the same time, they have a, some other learning disability or, uh, or, or cognitive disability. In our field, we call these kids twice exceptional. They're exceptional from the standpoint of their cognitive abilities. They're exceptional from the standpoint that they have a, a disability. And the, the sad part of this is because of their intellectual abilities, often these kids are actually overlooked in schools because they can compensate for their disability with their, their advanced talent. So part of it is helping to sift through and specifically identify when they have a disability along with their advanced talent. I have a son who is twice exceptional. So we had him tested in first grade because he couldn't learn how to read. And he had the verbal acuity of a 15 year old. Wow. So, you know, this is a very real sort of frustration for families and children. So what we do is um, many times when the students are already identified, we just look to the school and the paperwork and the, the accommodations that the students are already providing and we carry those into our program. Um, we work very closely with the parents and the student to find out what it is that they need to be able to work closely. We do have um, on staff a, um, a psychologist with expertise on social and emotional well-being for students with advanced talent, as well as a full-time disability services staff member so that we can meet their needs. Great. I should ask, because I'm sure we have plenty of parents or aspiring parents who want to know how to get help, how to check this out. So Virginia, what's the best way to learn more or to be in touch with you or CTY at Johns Hopkins? So the, the best thing to do is start at our website. So our, our web address is cty.jhu.edu. And that gets you to our landing page and then we go in a variety of different ways. One of the things that, that we have on our website is we do a speaker series. Mm -hmm. And so we have those taped and that's a great uh, way to get a uh, sort of a very quick verbal, you know, you can put in your earbuds and listen to it as you're walking along in the morning and get feedback and, and input on the field. Uh, and then there are a variety of different uh, ways to um, connect with different research studies and, and resources there as well. And, and another question for the parents or the parents who or the wannabe parents, um, what about the finances around this? It sounds like it just sounds expensive. And I wonder uh, if that's accurate. <laughs> Um, it, it sounds expensive. It is expensive. Historically, the organization has um, uh, provided financial aid and scholarships to students, and we do that um, on a sliding scale based on family income. But one of the things that we're trying to do now is to think about how do we work with governments and school districts to provide supports to students in such a way that it actually the cost is actually borne by the organization, not the students. So mm -hmm. if we can work with the school district to provide their services, when they're not able to provide those services, then an individual family is not being burdened at all with the cost of the service.
Yeah, you've talked throughout your whole career, and I know in our previous conversations how important equity and inclusion are for you. Um, how are, how's that going with either CTY at Johns Hopkins or the larger movement? Are, I have to believe that at least people now have the language, the knowledge, talk about special uh, gifted children. So it's not uh, unknown, but there's still work to be done, I would imagine, to get it to be more inclusive. It is an um, ongoing process. As the progression for students with disabilities, there has been a progression to meet the needs of students with advanced talent. Unfortunately, in um, the most recent five years, and particularly in the most recent three years, we see a real um, regression in terms of thinking about the needs of students with advanced talent. Um, this, I, when I talk to principals and I talk to superintendents in the field, they say, yeah, you know, I understand that, but you know, you need to understand that I, I've got kids who aren't even reading at grade level and I've got to make sure I, I deal with those kids yeah. first. Again, going back to that teacher training about helping schools um, and teachers know how to meet the needs of a diverse student population in their class. We do know from research that if we help teachers understand how to ask questions and pose problems to children in a more cognitively sophisticated way, not only will they meet the needs of our students, they will actually bring up other students. Other students. And I, I've seen this happen where yeah. teachers, I've actually seen situations where teachers are asking a very low level a response question, and the students are responding in a far more cognitively sophisticated way. And for us, part of that is helping teachers stand back and say, you know what, even though that's not what I expected, it's not wrong. And let me tolerate that that kind of creativity and ingenuity and level of abstraction that kids are capable of doing. And when some kids are able to do that, then some of the barriers that that prohibit students from being valued for what they know in the classroom become unlocked, not only for the students with advanced talent, but for students who may have very strong intellectual capacity, but have had weak skill training because of under-resourced schools or communities. Some people might say this sounds like a first world problem, but what about less developed parts of the world? Uh, do CTY programs fare well there? Are there, uh, I, I wonder, because there are talented and gifted students all over the world, um, have you had any uh, research or any work in that area? So, you know, that is one of the areas that I think that we need to be engaged in as, as an overall community. So one of the things that we see is even in, in countries that would not be considered um, developing nations in any way, um, they have a system of education that is very lockstep and very rote. Mm -hmm. And in those countries, introducing the concept of creativity is a, a big difference. Conversely, there are other countries where people would say, you know, these are developing nations. They value creativity. And because they value creativity, even though they don't have the kinds of resources that a, you know, so-called developed nation has, um, they do allow students to be creative and to explore alternative solutions to kind of mm -hmm. some of the 
problems that they that they pose. So I think part of this again is how does a culture conceptualize advanced talent? Yeah. In Western countries, we tend to conceptualize it as a test score number. In other countries, not necessarily. And in those countries, they are valuing creativity, which is at the base of students with advanced talent. They they can see different patterns and connections and abstractions in ways that, that other people may not necessarily see. Some countries where they don't use that kind of numeric metric, uh, they still value that creativity. I've done a little bit of research and some writing around, uh, you know, we know STEM education, science, technology, engineering, math, but I hear and I'm fascinated more and more by the concept of STEAM education, where you add in the arts, because a lot of these tech companies need right and left brain thinkers. And so I, I hear you loud and clear there. I think it's an exciting proposition. Um, and then I would imagine gender also depends on the culture where you're going, right? If there's not value put on educating young girls in say Afghanistan, then even harder if it's a gifted young girl in Afghanistan. Now, one thing I will say is if you look in general, Typically, when there is a societal crisis, uh, people start immediately gravitating toward, towards people with advanced talent. And when we, even in our own country, you know, Sputnik and, you know, that's when you see these big bumps and in interest in working with kids with advanced talent because it's like, uh oh, you know, we're, 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 we have a brain drain. We have to do something about it. And yeah. that's when we see some of those spikes. One last question for me. Are there any stories or a story you want to share about one particular touching experience you've dealt with? But one of them that is really particularly poignant for me is single mother, three children, all three of her children uh, had qualified and tested uh, with advanced talent and actually went through a special program that we have at CTY that specifically works with students who are first generation um, living in under resourced communities and um, and we provide a number of um, resources so that they understand actually how to negotiate the the school process the college um, application process and they all go on to great schools and great things so we were talking to this mother and she said you know we got, I kind of got a little competitive with my kids, you know, by the time the third one was going through your program, she said, so I decided I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get a degree too. So here she had three very talented children. We're, we're zooming along in school off with wonderful scholarships to very prestigious universities. And that actually inspired her to go back and to, and to go and get a college degree, which I really, I really appreciate it. <laughs> I love that story. Um, so Virginia Roach, I want to let you have the last word. First of all, thank you for joining us on The Caring Economy, but um, any final thoughts? It's all about human beings finding their place, their purpose, mm -hmm. their belonging, and realizing their potential. And for me, that's what equity is. And I, when I came to CTY 18 months ago, I was met with a very talented staff. We worked to put together a new strategic plan that really focuses on inclusion, equity, and anti-racism. But, you know, are we doing enough? No, we're never doing enough. We always have to do more. Mm -hmm. And I would say developing the plan is the easy part. The, the part that is the challenge 
And the part that I feel like I have to double down on now and continue to think about is how to keep promoting our collective enthusiasm for the work. Creating the plan was easy, but sticking with it day in and day out and just keep turning the flywheel with it mm -hmm. is the challenge. And I think that's a challenge for anybody in equity work. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great resolution each year as well. So again, I want to thank you. Uh, Virginia Roach is the executive director at Johns, Hop Johns Hopkins University's Center for Talented Youth. And I have to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Brian Bowles, for introducing us. And I hope you'll come back in the coming months and share more about the program. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.